Well, we have Josh Lerner here with us, who is the Professor of Investment Banking at Harvard Business School. Um, thank you very much for coming in. Um, you've got a new book out, which seems to be incredibly well-timed, which is about how, if I can paraphrase it crudely, how governments um, can help in trying to sort of uh, return entrepreneurialism and get economies firing again, which is uh, the question on all politicians' lips, I guess, at the moment. I just wonder if I can start by asking you a, a slightly related question, but about how finance has helped um, or hasn't helped uh, get businesses off the ground. Um, Paul Volcker um, announcing some of the recent reforms on investment banking was sort of questioning how how much financial innovation has actually done to help foster venture capital and um, uh, and getting businesses off the ground. Where do you stand on this? Do you think that Wall Street has done a good job at getting capital to the right bits of the economy over the last few years? Well, it's a great question. I mean, I think looking more broadly, you can clearly point to aspects of financial innovation which have had significant impacts, both in terms of businesses as well as on the consumer side. And certainly, you alluded to venture capital as an example of a, something that really didn't exist before World War II. And then, you know, while it took certainly some time to evolve, but in as it's sort of evolved in the U.S. and to you know somewhat lesser extent in the U.K., it's really become you know a very vital way for many entrepreneurs to be able to solve their problem of being able to get access to capital, yet being very risky in a way that banks and many of the other traditional investors wouldn't wouldn't provi- wouldn't provide it. But at the same time, I think it's clear that a lot of financial innovation has a you know very much of a me too element to it, where it's just simply proliferating project products that don't necessarily really add much to social value to social welfare. And it's also fair to say that in some cases, you also see these instances of mutation. I think one of the great examples along these lines is the whole area of subprime mortgages, which really originated, you know, largely in a nonprofit setting as well as in a few, you know, more socially oriented banks as a way to address the fact that it was extremely difficult for you know lower income people particularly minority neighborhoods to be able to get access to uh to loans but clearly there's an example where it's sort of mutated as it went through the diffusion process and something that was probably in many respects what you could regard as quite positive in terms of its social welfare implications turned on its head and actually became uh, quite destructive on several levels. One of the things that concerns um, policymakers and business people in this country is that a, a lot of um, the private equity money uh, that has been raised in recent years has tended to go towards leverage buyouts and that sort of activity. And, and, and the venture capital community such that it exists in the UK is, is pretty small, I mean, certainly by by sort of Silicon Valley standards. Um, how do, do, is that a problem that you see in the U.S. as well? Do you think that, uh, that I mean, private equity has tended to sort of eclipse venture capital as uh, in scale in recent years? Do, does that need to be retweaked? Do you think if we're going to get the economy moving again? Well, I mean, certainly there is a big issue about the state of venture industry worldwide, which is to say that you know, while certainly we've seen a lot of growth on the private equity side, there's a lot of interest in terms of doing alternative investments. In general institutional investors, the pensions and sovereign funds and so forth, have been skeptical about investing in venture capital. And this is certainly true in the States, but it's even more dramatically true in Europe. 
And a lot of the reason is not because of some irrational aversion to ventures. It's because essentially the venture venture funds haven't delivered the kind of returns that these investors have been looking for and to really get commensurate with the risks. So the fact that we've had this sort of extended trough where there haven't been a lot, you know, really since 2000, where there haven't been a lot of exits, a lot of public offerings, a lot of, you know, trade sales at at terrific prices and so forth, has engendered a lot of skepticism about venture capital and has really led to the kind of difficulties and challenges that the the industry is really facing on a worldwide basis. And why do you think that is? I mean, do do you think there's a capacity issue? Is there actually just not enough innovation and smart ideas in the world to soak up all this money? I mean, is that part of the problem as well? I I mean, I'm very skeptical of that. I mean, because certainly there's, you know, so many examples over the course of history where people have said innovations have run out. I mean, the you know, example of the, you know, head of a British patent office at the beginning in 1900 saying all the great inventions have been made. There's nothing really new to discover. Or, you know, even examples of innovators like Tom Watson in 1946 when they interviewed him about what the demand, world demand for computers was going to be. And he said it was around six. Yes. <laughs> yeah, so I think we always have this tendency to sort of have a sense that everything technologically has been discovered. Certainly, I think you can look at a lot of the indicators in terms of patent data and other indicators to which suggest there hasn't really been a slowdown in innovation. And certainly, if you think about the other side of the demand for innovation, whether we think about um, you know global warming, whether we think about terrorism, whether we think about pandemics, it seems that if anything, the demand for technological innovation is going to be greater in the years to come rather than rather than less. One of the things you address in your book is the question about what governments can do to help. And I think you go through areas in which governments have been very helpful and other areas where they're perhaps more of a hindrance. It's a slightly more nuanced perspective and I think a lot of people in Europe sometimes uh, appreciate about the, about the US. I mean, I think there's a sort of a stereotype that Silicon Valley in particular is a sort of freewheeling kind of completely stateless uh, uh, ec- economy. I mean, can you describe some of the ways you think in which, you know, the government at, through education or whatever has has sort of helped foster uh, the, the rise of entrepreneurialism in the U.S.? Yeah. I mean, I think it is striking when you look at the history of Silicon Valley, how much the hand of government played a role. You know, I mean, it's clear that this was much more important in the early days, but in some sense you can say in the early days that was really where the template for what followed really really got set. And I think you can point to certainly in terms of uh, public funding of of research, and you certainly saw you know a very deliberate effort in the in on the part of public policy, you know, really going back to World War One of saying let's spread the money out, you know, so we don't want to have all the concentration on the East Coast. Of course, the fact that during World War II we had a war in the Pacific made a lot of reasons for having technological innovation and production capabilities being out there. And they certainly played a very important role there. I think even, you know, for some more direct interventions in terms of particularly during the 50s and 60s with a program known as the Small Business Investment Company Program, which essentially funded a lot of the early venture capital firms, played an important role, even though most of those firms eventually either dropped out of the program and just simply went and became private or else didn't didn't survive. Essentially, what you saw is not only did it create really the it really accelerated the creation of clusters in both Silicon Valley and Boston, but it also 
very much led to the creation of a lot of the intermediaries in terms of law firms, accountants, uh, data providers, which geared towards servicing first the SBICs and then later on the more traditional venture industry. Here in Britain, the, the, the government is, is, is talking about a, a similar initiative at the moment, trying to set up a new, a new fund to try and direct uh, investment towards these types of businesses. Um, in many respects, it's recreating what it used to have in, in 3i, which is a similar uh, um, setup. Uh, what what tips would you give policymakers when they're designing these sorts of things to make them work? I mean, the fear that I have is that they, they, the, the money ends up going to sort of whatever the sort of sexy, new, fashionable thing is at any one moment, which by the time it filters through to, to, to the politicians or people setting those priorities, it's usually three years out of date. I mean, wh- how do you make sure that the money goes to the right place when you set these public-private partnerships up? I think it's a great question because there's clearly so many pitfalls. Just illustrating the point you were raising, if you look at the states today, you know, of the 50 states, 49 of them have initiatives about promoting biotech, which are predicated on the assumption that their state is uniquely qualified for biotech ventures. And even though basically the geography of a business, of a biotech industry, has basically been fixed since the early 1980s. And certainly many of these cases, you saw people coming late to the party and jumping into it. You're seeing much of the same thing going on with uh, clean tech today because it's the it's the darling of a moment. I think that certainly one of the most important things is this idea of having some degree of a market feedback in the process. That you know, however smart and dedicated the government officials are likely to be, um, you know, in however much effort goes into these programs, if it's just simply the people sitting trying to pick winners and pick categories to go into without any kind of other signals, it's, it's almost invariably going to get it, going to get it wrong. And the, the approaches, the programs that seem to have worked better are ones where they really require a significant match in terms of saying, you, we will invest with you, but you've got to go and raise a bunch of private funds as well in the area that you want. This can sort of lead to, this can sort of limit the problem of you know, sort of herding into yesterday's news, it also can address one of the other pervasive problems which you run into really around the world, which is this sort of, uh, you know, spread it out regionally, you know, saying, you know, we can't just simply do a fund in these three places which have clusters going on. We need every city, every major, every province, you know, every every county has got to have a program of their own, whether it ends up making sense or not. And sort of acquiring that match again can sort of do some of the sorting out that the political process often isn't very good in terms of saying no to uh, somebody from a region which maybe doesn't have much potential for these high potential ventures, but is politically influential or you know simply a constituency that wants to, that people want to reward. Now I'm going to put you on the on the spot because we've both been a bit sniffy about the uh, about government sort of necessarily being able to spot. New innovations. Um, uh, where do you think they're going to come from? What do you think is the sort of the, the cutting edge at the moment? Uh, what what kind type of industries would you be putting your money on? Well, it's a great question. Of course, if I really knew the answer to this, I you wouldn't be. We would, wouldn't, wouldn't be a professor at Harvard. <laughs> exactly. I'd be happily retired on Caribbean Ireland. Um, you know, I think you can certainly point to you know several areas which are likely to be ones that you know have have innovation. And again, I would sort of go back to the, the issues around around demand. I think that, you know, well, certainly you can say in the area of 
clean tech and energy-related technologies, there's a lot of old ideas being trotted out, many of which were tried in the 70s and didn't work terribly well then. And the second time around, it may well be that you know they're not going to be much more successful. But at the same time, it's hard not to feel, given the magnitude of the demand there, that this is going to be an area that's going to reward a lot of activity. It's challenging just simply because the size of scaling up is certainly one which is really quite, really quite substantial. I think another area that you can certainly point to is the marriage between information technology on the one hand and um, biotechnology and medical area on the other. And you know, obviously, there's been lots of attention to areas around medical records, but more generally, it seems that you know, so many people use the phrase in terms of biochemistry of moving from wet to dry. In other words, in terms of doing experiments where you're moving things around test tubes to you know, essentially manipulating the just vast amounts of data that are generated, it seems that certainly being able to exploit the the kind of insights which are out there of you know the, the amount of data that's out there and sort of applying it to really practical problems in terms of human health and so forth remains an area that's got an awful lot of potential. Mm. And, and do you think we're being slightly sort of Western-centric in assuming that these sorts of industries will, will necessarily come out of clusters in Europe or, or North America? I mean, do, 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 how optimistic are you about our ability to keep uh, innovating in the face of sort of you know the rise of asian economies that seem to be where all the all the dynamism is yeah moment. i mean i think this is a tremendous tremendous challenge i mean certainly there has been i mean from you know following the venture industry for instance in china over the last decade plus you know the the increase in terms of not just the scale but the sophistication of people doing the investing process the experience in terms of the entrepreneurs themselves is an extremely impressive transformation moreover i think you can argue in a lot of cases that um, when you look at the history of technological innovation it tends not to be this kind of pipeline model that we sometimes have in mind where you know sort of the basic research comes out of a university and gets transformed into useful products very often the innovations have really sprung from the backwards, from the actual manufacturing process and inter interacting with the customers on that end, which leads to new ideas that then transform then transform industries. And it's natural to wonder as more and more of the manufacturing activity moves to markets like like China, whether that's not going to provide a you know very powerful leg up in terms of in terms of innovation. I mean, in some sense, you can say Apple has is really the exception here, right? In the sense that they're not really touching the iPhone themselves. You know, they're basically just integrating between manufacturers in China and software developers where you know in India or wherever. But I think going forward, it's hard not to wonder whether, as the you know the sort of lower end. Uh, you know, as as manufacturing and you know the sort of more applied research moves to these lower cost, these lower cost, very dynamic economies, whether the sort of more fundamental innovations won't follow as well. Uh, yeah, I, I think that's right. You also even wonder with Apple how much of the actual product innovation is is going on in southern China or wherever they're. The, right. whether, I mean, where they're learning to make flatter right. screens or thinner devices and right. all these sorts of things that make these products right. uh, the, the success that they are. You, exactly. You, but somehow Apple's managed at least so far to capture, you know, the lion's share of the rents rather than, 
yes. you know, the the other people in the food chain. But I think going forward, it's 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 natural to wonder whether um, you know with the economic growth, not only will we see and we're already seeing the sort of increase in terms of investment in the university systems and you know research efforts, research initiatives of various types, but also just the very proximity and focus on the manufacturing leading to innovation in its own mm-hmm. right. Can I ask you a bit about your own university? I mean, obviously, mm-hmm. as, as, as well as sponsoring research and allowing people like yourself to, to do books on any, any interesting topics, it's also a big trainer of future business leaders. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember going to Harvard Business School to do a story shortly after Enron about uh, the ethics courses mm-hmm. that were being introduced to sort of try and adjust to the, the problems that that had thrown up. Uh, there, there seems to be a similar mood around at the moment in business education circles to sort of try and reflect on the on the financial crisis. I mean, what do you think should or could be done to the way that, that future business leaders are trained? Or can you can you install or instill ethics in, 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 in your students? Well, I think that at one level, and I'm not sure whether my colleagues would agree with this, but I mean, clearly dealing with people who are, you know, 26, 27, 28 years old, these are sort of fully formed people. But at the same time, clearly having a kind of sensitivity to the issues and the challenges that are there, I think certainly one of the is, is an important aspect. And I think that certainly one of the um, areas that's been tremendous amount of effort devoted to and where there seems to be, you know, a real surge of interest on the part of students isn't really this broader heading of a rubric of what you might describe as social entrepreneurship. In other words, saying, how do you take the tools of whether entrepreneurs or venture capitalists or, you know, or angel investors and then apply them into realms where it's not traditionally the, you know, where the, where the, objectives are simply broader, more social social problems. And I think this is an area where not only is there a lot of student interest, but I think it's also potentially an area where from a intellectual point of view, we can potentially add add a lot of value. That in some sense, clearly we see a lot of things on the private side that work and a lot of things on the private side that don't work. And while the mapping isn't one for one, it seems that there must be lessons that can be learned in terms of both shaping public efforts as well as those mm-hmm. by NGOs and NGOs and mm-hmm. others. No, I think that's right. It's something we've we've talked a lot about on this on this show. Actually, there's, there's a lot of interest at the Guardian in, in social entrepreneurship in in the broader form. I suppose what I was thinking of more though was um, the extent to which an awful lot of the the the, uh, the students from Harvard Business School and presumably some of the people in your class are natural leaders on Wall Street mm-hmm. and um, at a time of enormous, huge debate both here and in the US on on sort of the reforms that investment banking is mm-hmm. going through. I wondered where you stood on, on all of that. Do you think that something uh, is badly broken and needs, and needs reform or do you think we were kind of, we were heading in the right direction anyway and that there's a danger of governments being over-interventionist? I guess I would say yes and yes, <laughs> which is to say that, I mean, I think on some fundamental level, if you're going to have a public backstop and a public guarantee, as we've seen worldwide, it seems that it clearly needs to be coupled with some regulation with real teeth to address some of the, you know, the sort of more fundamental moral hazard problems that are, that are out there. At the same time, it's hard not to think, and you certainly can think about lots of examples in history of uh, cases where governments have stepped in from a really rather reactive point of view in response to financial crises and so forth and come up with regulations that didn't make a lot of sense, which ended up 
doing a lot of harm to valuable, you know, valuable functions in the economy without necessarily, you know, solving the fundamental issues mm. that were at stake. So it's fraught with peril. Do you think the Volcker rule is the new Sarbanes-Oxley then? Is that what you're saying? Well, I, I guess, you know, it's, it's still, it's hard to say, right? Because they're simply, at the moment, you know, I think in a lot of these things, the devil is really in the details. And at least from what I've seen, there seems to be a lot of ambiguity still exactly in how this thing is going to be, uh, how these things are going to be shaped and what kind of forms they're going to, uh, what, the, what forms are going to take once they get through the sausage factory of making legislation. But I think that you can certainly see a very plausible intellectual case for doing something along these lines, but you also can easily see how, you know, interpreted broadly, it could end up limiting some very valuable functions that investment banks and other kind of intermediaries play that, you know, essentially provide the grease for lots of transactions and lots of activity in the economy. Well, that's very nicely uh, sat on the fence, I think, but but understandable given how fresh this is and nobody really knows yet. Perhaps it's a good excuse to see if we can try and get you back at some point and uh, get you to definitively say whether you think the the Wall Street cleanup is heading in the right direction. But um, Josh Downer, thanks very much for coming in and talking to us. It's my pleasure. Thanks. Thanks.